Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great Remastered. Episode 10, Entering Egypt. Alexander had just conquered Tyre, and, as we know, he wanted to conquer Egypt. He wanted this both as it would mean he had conquered all of the Persian Empire west of the Euphrates, which would add much-needed security to Greece, but it would also, well, give him control of Egypt. Enough said. Egypt was a fabulously wealthy country, with a huge food supply. It would be a powerful enough rival on its own, never mind as part of an empire. It had to be taken. Alexander advanced to the city of Gaza, which was the last settlement in the region holding out. The master of the stronghold, a eunuch named Betis, refused to surrender. Betis had recruited mercenary Arabs and had been collecting resources to hold out for a siege, believing that his town was too strongly defended to be taken. Have we heard something similar before? A city holding out against Alexander, the last one holding out in the region, which was seemingly impenetrable. Maybe it's just me. Gaza is in Palestine, in an area, funnily enough, known as the Gaza Strip. The city was located about two and a half miles from the sea. Between the sea and the city was deep sand. It was a well-defended city, having high walls, and it was built on a hill. Its strategic importance was that it was the last town you would pass through before reaching Egypt, when travelling from Phoenicia, obviously. Alexander looked at the city, found what he considered to be the city's weak spot in the defences, which was the southern section of the wall, and began collecting his siege engines there. To render the hill useless, he began creating his own artificial mound. Once everything was prepared, an omen happened. In Arian's account, Alexander was offering a sacrifice when a bird flew overhead and dropped a stone which struck Alexander's head. Aristander said that this meant he would take the city, but he should take care for his own safety. Plutarch says that the clod of earth hit his shoulder, and adds to this that the bird perched on one of the siege engines and became entangled and was caught, which explains why he would interpret Alexander as taking the city. Alexander let his army attack the city, keeping close to where the siege engines were situated, but the defenders were determined not to lose and fought back, attempting to set fire to the siege engines. They very nearly pushed the Macedonians back off the earthworks they had created. Seeing this, Alexander forgot the prophetic warning. Either that, or he just deliberately ignored it. Who knows? Either way, he plunged into the melee at the head of his guards. He made his way to the point where the Macedonians were most in trouble, arriving in the brink of time, stopping them from being forced off the earthworks. Unfortunately, while doing this, a missile from the catapult pierced his shield, corslet, and penetrated his shoulder. The wound was very serious, and did not yield easily to treatment. 
This is why Alexander was delighted. Having been injured, he was convinced that Aristander had made a correct prediction, and was now convinced the town would fall. Siege equipment from Tyre now arrived, and Alexander moved the earthwork, which was a quarter of a mile wide, and 50 feet, 17 metres high, around the town. Alexander set the artillery loose on the town, heavily damaging the defences, and saps were dug, leading the walls to collapse. The final attack began, and soon the Macedonians had control of a wide sector of the wall. It was only a matter of time until the city fell. The defenders had suffered heavy casualties, fending off the Macedonians three times, but the fourth attack proved one too many, and the town was stormed. Once the defences had been taken, the gates were opened and the army flooded in. The defenders fought to the last. Some 10,000 men were killed, with the women and children being sold into slavery. The town was repopulated with people from the surrounding tribes. The siege lasted some two months, in September and October 332. Before we move on from the siege of Gaza, I would like to recount a plainly fictitious story which is offered to us by Curtius. This goes that once the city was taken, Alexander had Betis, while he was still alive, dragged around the walls of the city by his ankles from a chariot. Like Achilles had dragged the corpse of Hector around Troy in the Iliad. This runs counter with Alexander's piety, but is nonetheless quite interesting. Alexander could now, after conquering Phoenicia, finally march into Egypt. A week after leaving Gaza, he arrived at Pelusium, the first city to Egypt on his route. Mazakes, the governor of Egypt, who you'll remember defeated Amintas last week, had no native troops. Given this, and that Darius's force had been decimated by Alexander at Isis, and that Darius had dishonourably fled from the field, and that Alexander had conquered all of Phoenicia and Syria, including the seemingly untakeable cities of Tyre and Gaza, Mazakes received Alexander with a show of friendship, and offered him entrance to Egypt and its cities. The fact that Alexander just took, arguably, the most important region of the Persian Empire without a fight says a lot about how the campaign was going. After taking Pelusium, Alexander ordered the fleet, which had been following him along the coast, down the Nile to Memphis, while he himself marched overland along the east bank of the river to the city of Heliopolis, without any opposition. From there, he advanced to Memphis, where he did the usual Alexander thing. He offered sacrifices, held games with athletic and literary contests. There is something about them notable this time, though. Alexander does the same routine in almost every important city he captures, but in this stopover, he offered a special sacrifice to Apis. Now, I'm sure you're asking, who or what is Apis? 
Apis was the calf of Memphis, which was sacred to the god Ptah. This showed Alexander doing something which the Persians had never done, respecting Egyptian religion. Cambyses, the Persian king who conquered Egypt, actually stabbed the Apis. So, things between Egypt and Persia did not get off to a good start. The Egyptians resented the Persians and were eager to throw off the Persian yoke. You'll remember that they succeeded in doing this for 40 years. So, when Alexander came and honoured their religion, never mind simply not openly insulting it, the Egyptians treated him as a liberator rather than as a conqueror. It's something Alexander did in most of the areas he conquered, which was politically a stroke of genius. In Egypt, it led him to be crowned as pharaoh in Thebes. After leaving Memphis, he sailed down the Nile with a smaller force until he reached a piece of land which would become Alexandria. Alexander wanted to create a great maritime city, and according to Plutarch, Alexander picked a site for the city, but then had a dream. In this dream, a grey-haired old man quoted these lines from the Odyssey. Out of the tossing sea, where it breaks onto the beaches of Egypt, rises an isle from the waters. The name that men give it is Pharos. See Plutarch, Alexander, chapter 26. The next day, Alexander went to Pharos, which was then an island near the Canopic mouth of the Nile, but has since been joined to the mainland by a causeway, and he decided to build the city there. With, or without, help from Homer, it was clear that the site was excellent. Alexander wanted to create a maritime capital, which would grow wealthy through trade, eventually eclipsing the other great trading cities, like Carthage and Syracuse. Pharos was a strip of land along the coast, creating something resembling an isthmus between the sea and a lagoon, with a harbour between it. Alexander, always impulsive, wanted to start work on the city right away. It is said Alexander designed the city himself, designing it to look like a military cloak. He chose the location of the key features, such as the market square, the limits of the outer defences, and the number of temples, as well as deciding whom they should serve, the Greek gods and the Egyptian Isis. There goes a story that Alexander had no chalk to mark out the walls, but one of his soldiers had the bright idea of using barley meal, as this would stand out against the dark ground. Once it had been laid out, a flock of birds came and ate every single grain of barley. Alexander was worried, but his soothsayers reassured him, saying that the omen meant that the city would have abundant resources, and men of innumerable nations would flock to it. I'm sure I don't have to point out that this was obvious. Being Egypt's chief trade city, it would have the resources of the grain of Egypt, an incredibly fertile piece of land. Alexandria would indeed become one of the most important cities in the Mediterranean, if not the world. It would become the home to the Pharos Lighthouse, 
at the time one of the world's tallest buildings, and one of the seven wonders of the world. It possessed the great library, which tried to collect all the world's knowledge, and its destruction is said to have set humanity back a thousand years. It would serve as the capital of Ptolemaic Egypt, and as one of the key cities in the Roman Empire, becoming home to one of the five great bishoprics of Christianity. It would lose its preeminence in Egypt during the Islamic conquest in the 7th century AD, the caliphate preferring to create a new capital, which would become Cairo. Alexandria is still the second city of Egypt, with 4.1 million inhabitants. If you wish to hear more about modern Alexandria and modern Egypt, remember to check out my The Arab Spring A History podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please visit us online, thehistoryofpodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com, thehistoryofpodcast.spreadshirt.co.uk, instagram.com forward slash Jamie Redfern, and the History Podcasting Fantasy Football League. There will be no episode next week, as I shall be in Rome, but I'll see you in two weeks, when we look at Alexander's adventure to Siwa.